there's a hugely disproportionate shift towards social purpose strategies, which don't have a commercial purpose as their end goal. So we've stopped selling things and we've started saving the world. If you're at all curious what it's like to start an ad agency at the worst possible time, this might be the podcast for you. That's because I started one last year and my God, it is hard. So what I'm doing is I'm talking to people who have found success in our industry and then applying what I learned to my own life and business. If it doesn't work, I'm screwed. What's up? What's up? Uh, I'm just going to get right into it. Last episode, if you heard it, I talked about a difficult situation I was in with my new business partner um, named Javier and was having some trust issues. I was unsure of, I basically was insecure about whether or not he was as in it as me. And I let him know that. And I just want to give you guys an update on what happened. So I let him know that. And he had a good response, which basically was you know, I'm working extremely hard. You don't understand the amount of time some of this stuff takes. Um, I personally didn't understand how important working in person was to you, all that sort of stuff. But I I really upset him. Um, And I understand why. And I kind of knew that I was going to, but I saw the value in just being totally open and honest. And that that's sort of something I have to learn about myself and it almost feels like decide on. I think I can be open and transparent probably to a fault. I'd much rather be completely direct and honest than unclear. And I probably need to find a sweet spot where I convey feelings and information in a way that's a bit more respectful and empathetic maybe. But long story short, we came to the resolution that we would work from this co-working space, and that in turn has solved everything. Um, I think we're more productive now. I think I have a better understanding of where his time goes. He has a better understanding of where my time goes. Um, We're forming a closer relationship. Uh, You know, so by being in the same place, and it's interesting because we are in this remote situation where you know, yes, like the world has changed and people can work remote now and you can be very effective with that. But I do think that something is lost when you completely go that route and you don't have any in-person working time. I think that, you know, for me, it's like one, I, I think having strong interpersonal relationships both personally and professionally is important. I do think it's more productive, you know, being able to say, hey, what do you think about this? Instead of having to hop on Slack and do that, you can just turn your computer. I don't know. I just, I, I frankly just like it more. Um, and I think, you know, hoping that this becomes more and more successful, you know, we do need to hire people. I don't, you know, I'm cool with remote stuff, but it's definitely got to be in person too. Uh, that's just, important to me. And I think to build a culture, it's hard to do that over Zoom calls. And so I think I think we've potentially overcorrected or over overly gone towards a remote working style. Um, and hopefully there's going to be some in work type stuff. Anyways, that's my spiel. We have a great conversation with a guy named Steve Harrison. 
There's not much I'm going to say leading up to it, but basically he wrote a book. He's very prolific within the ad space. He reached out to me asking if I would talk to him. And after vetting him, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. But it's sort of like, you know, I don't think either of us are going to get canceled, but like there is some stuff in there that is a little, are people going to hate me if I put this out? Which honestly, I'm cool with. So I'll let you guys decide uh, if you want. If you guys want to cancel me, cool. Let's get let's get me canceled. You know, let's get me off the airwaves. Uh, but if not, you know, I'll just kind of keep doing what I'm doing. On your LinkedIn, one of the first things that you say, uh, or at least in your description, is you kind of break down advertising as being this simple thing, and the focus is really around coming up with two big ideas. There's the marketing idea and then the creative idea. So what's, can you just talk about the difference between those two? When I started in this game um, as a 20, as a 30-year-old uh, junior copywriter, I started at Ogilvy's. Same. Yeah, you too. You too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course you were. Yes, yes, yes. You were. Yeah. And I was getting shit briefs, you know, as, as normal, you know, the standard vague platitudes about the best just got better or the more flexible way to do this or, you know, the ultimate that, you know. And I was doing work. I was trying to put a big idea into that kind of work, Tim. And it was, I was doing some reasonable, after a while, I was doing some stuff that people quite liked and my book was filling up. But I knew from the research and from the results that none of this was working. And I thought, well, shit, I'm putting a big idea into this stuff, you know, kind of, was why is none of this working? And then I kind of read around this and it was Bill Birnbach who said that, you know, we, we must think about unchanging man, you know, man as his instincts are to survive, to be loved, to thrive and all of that kind of stuff. And I started thinking, I'm not writing this advertising for the people I should be. And that's my prospects, the people who are reading it. And so I just, I started to take the brief that I was given. I would be given a, I would look at who am I writing to? I would look at what am I writing about? And then I would ask two questions. What is the problem being faced by this person at the moment? And what is the solution provided by the damn thing that I'm selling? And only then could I realize that I'd start, I could start work then. And it was then that I realized you don't need one big idea, a big creative idea, unless you've had a big marketing idea, which is why the hell anyone would be interested in this thing in the first place. There's no point in doing any creative at all because you're basically making it up, you know, kind of and you're doing stuff that pleases you and your peers and the awards juries and, and you're just guessing. So if you don't have the big marketing idea, which is essentially why, you know, what problem are you solving with this product or service or this idea that you're trying to promote? So the big marketing idea was why would it, you know, what's the problem being solved by this thing? The big creative idea is how do you dramatize or demonstrate that? And so that is the sole purpose of the creative idea, to dramatize or demonstrate what's in it for the customer, what the benefit is, what the advantage is, the problem you're solving for them. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, Let's take Coke, for instance. So in your mind, what's the marketing big idea and then what's their creative big idea? I think that the, the the insight that everybody needs some kind of moment in their life when, you know, they get together with their friends, you know, kind of and share a moment together. It's, 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 it's not too far removed from a lot of beer advertising, 
you know, kind of at a moment when you relax, you loosen your tie, you know, kind of, or you, you know, kind of, and you kick back and you open something and it just gives you a chance to clink glasses with your friends and it's a happy moment. Gotcha. So what, what's the, what's the problem though? Like, how would you frame that problem? It's that. Our busy and pressured lives, man, you know, kind of, that's our problem. We all want a moment of release. We all want a moment of relief. We all want a moment of, of refreshment, you know, kind of, but I don't think the refreshment thing is that it. The idea is that you're just kicking back and there's a moment when, Hey, you know, kind of like clink that glass, you know, kind of, um, and it's a, it's a moment of joy. And we, and and who doesn't need that? Gotcha. So I think like where my head was at was finding the problem was more of a product focused problem, right? So like if it was Coke, one problem, you know, that is part of the strategy in terms of, you know, what the brief is. Um, but one problem could be that people want to wake up in the morning and Coke is a caffeinated beverage that helps you wake up. That's what my dad does. That's kind of what I do sometimes. I don't think they've ever gone that functional way though, have they? I mean, the problem solution, the problem is, I think, very rarely a practical functional problem. I think the problem often, I would say when I was, you know, when I was in this racket, that the problem exists between the person's ears. And the difficult part is for the client and the agency to work out which problem is the one that's going to result in the most lucrative return on investment and which has also got longevity. A practical and functional benefit can be copied. Right. So that's a bit more difficult for me to do, but I agree that it's right because it allows the solution to be a brand solution and not just a product solution. So let's let's um, take a real world example that we have. So we have an upcoming client that we're going to need to strategically position and answer these questions for. It's a five hour energy, essentially like kind of they, they sell it in gummies and they sell it kind of like a five hour energy type bottle, like a small bottle that you get at a convenience store, like right at the gas station checkout. The thing about it is it's CBD, five-hour energy. So it's it's made with hemp. We're not going to say CBD, but basically, you know, we're starting to think about the positioning without even going through this exercise. And we're thinking about like a clean form of energy or like a new type of energy that's more organic and like doesn't feel so chemically and like that sort of thing. But going through your process, kind of where would you start brainstorming around what problem this might solve or what's the human problem associated with this? You're, you're, you're talking to people who are environmentalists or if, if not are, are sympathetic with that cause. And they and the thing that they are appalled by is pollution. Well, you're talking to them and about not polluting their body. You know, Red Bull is a pollutant, you know, and it, and it has all, all of the attendant baggage with that go with that, you know, kind of, uh, but I think you're talking about something that isn't non-polluting. So what if it's about like these people, you know, the problem that pe- these people have is they, they're very health conscious yeah, and they want energy quickly and, you know, on the go. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't feel like coffee is conducive to that for whatever reason. Yeah. But their problem is that it feels like all these energy drinks and energy shots aren't healthy. So yours um, is natural energy, I mean, and I think you're on a you're on good ground drawing anal- analogies with you know kind of um, sustainable energy proge- programs. You know, kind of. I think I think you're spinning something that's already got a lot of momentum there, man. 
you know, kind of. Um, and if nobody else has claimed that space as far as energy drinks is concerned, then get in there. Okay, that's really interesting. That parallel is really interesting. But I think the idea of like natural energy is very much like where we were focused. So, but what you're doing there is you've come up with the big marketing idea, you know, kind of then you're, you're dramatizing and demonstrating it. When you get into, okay, how, what analogies can I use? You know, it's the, you know, kind of it's the big creative idea. So, again, it's too. They got two big ideas are needed before you can crack something. Okay, so um, you wrote a book. I did. How about you give me the log line for that book and just tell me why you felt a need to write it? Um, it's called Can't Sell, Won't Sell. Um, and it's uh, subtitled Advertising Politics and Culture Wars, Why Adland Has Stopped Selling and Started Saving the World. So uh, why, did I, why did I write it? A friend of mine... Put together, used to put together a, a report on the big award festivals, you know, kind of. And he told me, he said, like, Steve, the 23 Grand Prix winners at Cannes this year, only six of them had an increase in sales as an objective. And it's just like, wow, you're joking, man. You know, kind of, you know, kind of work. There was no commercial purpose to this work, you know, because there was no commercial end to it. There was no measurable sense that somebody somebody actually bought the damn thing at the end of it. And so I started looking into it. And it, 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 it you know, kind of if you look at, you know, kind of most of the award shows nowadays, you know, kind of there's a hugely disproportionate shift towards social purpose strategies, which don't have a commercial purpose as their end goal. So we've stopped selling things and we've started saving the world. And I was trying to work out why this should be. I was reading the Washington Post and re reading Forbes magazine. And they started asking back in 2016, can a very left-leaning industry talk to and empathize with the 65 million people who voted for Donald Trump? The commentary was pretty frightening. Kind of um, in Forbes magazine, it they estimated that around 85 to 90% of advertising people were left-leaning liberals. Okay, and a good proportion of them belonged in the Bernie Bernie Sanders camp. So we have a we have a very left leaning industry, which is struggling to represent the mainstream audience that it should be selling to. Um, and I took this back and then saw that how this was reflected in the UK, and we are twice as likely to be left leaning in the UK in the advertising and marketing industry than the mainstream. My own research said that actually we are three or four times more likely to vote Labour, which is our, our left wing party. And you would think that we have, well, well, we can overcome those barriers because we are an industry that, that specializes in something called empathy. But there was a fabulous report done called the Empathy Delusion by Andrew Tenzer and Ian Murray in the United Kingdom, which indicated that not only are advertising people less likely to be able to empathize than the mainstream are. You know, kind of we are we are we have lost the ability to empathize. Their view was that we are actually completely out of touch with the mainstream, that we are operating in a middle class elitist privileged bubble for which you would need a very strong telescope to see us circling the real world most of the time. Well, that all that makes sense. I mean, you've shared the book with me, but you've also, I'm, I'm assuming, shared it with others. What did your left-leaning friends say about it? Now, when I brought the book out in August, I was expecting to have to, have to enter the WPP. And I don't mean why 
coated plastic products. I meant the witness protection program. I thought that the people in Adland would would find me and whatever. But I was I was because I thought you know I made one big mistake, and that is that everybody in Adland is enthralled to social purpose strategies. And the truth of the matter is that most of the I got overwhelming support from people in the industry. You know, kind of um, people are tired of the politicization of the workplace. Tim. Yes, of course, you know, the, uh, the general response was, yeah, I'm left-leaning, Steve, you've nailed it, but I am tired of, of the politicization of the workplace. I'm tired of the default solution for everything being a social purpose strategy. And it became apparent to me that the social purpose and social justice agenda is being driven by careerists and activists, and a small number of them are basically are pushing that strategy. And the, re- and the majority of people are, frankly, too frightened to speak out against it, about it. That, that was one of the things, you know, I didn't know what your book was about when I read, you know, the handful of chapters that you told me to read. And, you know, as I was reading it, I was just like, oh boy, like this is brave, you know, to put this out because I think a lot of people are going to have issues with it. I mean, my, my take was, the chapters that you had me read, you know, were a lot about diversity and inclusion kind of went against what people seem to be fighting for. So just can you, can you talk to me about, you know, it's really chapters 11, 12 and, and 13 and 14 about kind of the diversity problem and, and how you feel about it. I think we have a, a diversity problem in the United Kingdom in the advertising industry. That's without doubt. But I think the problem that we've got is one of class as much as race. That the advertising industry in the UK is, as I said, a middle-class privileged preserve. It's a gated community. 88% of the people who work in our industry have either got a degree or uh, a master's. Something like 70% of them were brought up where the major breadwinner was an AB in the AB social category. That's kind of like the richest social category, as opposed to the national average, which is 27%. Across all the board, all, all the, I, I think something like about 23% of, a, of the people in our industry come from a, a DE background, which is our working class background, as opposed to 43% of national average. It's a middle class gated community. And those people who are, a, who are from black, Asian or mixed ethnicity in our industry, 70% of them are privately educated as opposed to 7% of the national average. These are the upper echelon, upper classes. You've got to have lots of money, okay? And, and so it's a middle-class bubble. And what we need to be doing is to get in. It isn't necessarily the, the diversity. is it, it should be colorblind. It should be getting working-class people into the industry who might one day be able to get us back in touch with the people we are talking to. But I don't know what the situation's like in the States, Tim, but advertising, which used to be a enrich our culture, is now regarded as peripheral to our culture in the UK. Yeah. So you're saying it's kind of independent of race. The problem is, um, and it just so happens that, you know, race like is a factor. My problem is, my fear is that we will, in response to Black Lives Matter, hire a disproportionate amount, a number of black kids. And they, and they will be airdropped into these middle-class agencies, and they will get mentored for two weeks by Oscar and Boudica, the, you know, kind of these posh kids who will treat these, you know, the, the, these trainees as some kind of novelty. And then the novelty will wear off, and those kids will be left 
like fish out of water, you know, surrounded by people who they don't get, people who don't get them, and then eventually they'll just give up. And the, and all of our efforts to right the wrongs, the imbalance in our in our industry, will have failed yet again. Well, these these are kids. We're we're talking about kids who are in the ad industry or aspiring to be in the ad industry that, you know, do have, you know, some level of talent, I would assume. And if they're mid-level, they have some experience and that sort of thing. So why why is it that you feel like they would have that experience of feeling alienated and, you know, not, not wanting to be there, that sort of thing? I base this upon my conversations and, and my reading. Or There's a, a good friend of mine who runs a organization called Commercial Break. And for eight years now, nine years, James has been dedicated to getting working class kids into the creative industries. And he said, this is his experience. You take working class kids, put them into this middle class environment, and they they don't speak the same language. They don't have the same frame of reference. They feel uncomfortable. They feel patronized and condescended to. And the people in advertising differ from the from the mainstream. And I'm talking about working class kids being the mainstream. Yeah, I guess um, just hearing it, like the, the, my initial reaction is that it's not, one, I question whether or not that's the case. Because I I know that people can feel victimized in agencies and maybe feel uncomfortable because of their race. I'm, you know, I've heard that. I understand that. But it does seem like, you know, one, those people stick it out and are tough and figure out a way to make it work. And then two, it feels like there's a major cultural shift with what's happened to really be sensitive and in a way probably over accommodating people of other races. And I'm not sure that that's something that just goes away. And even if it does, I don't know if it translates to somebody quitting their job and leaving the industry. You know, so to me on the outside hearing this, it doesn't feel like an either or it feels like a, like an and, you know, so figuring out ways to get working class people into the workforce is one way to help minorities um, enter advertising, which I think perhaps is more effective, but maybe another way to do it is to really focus on increasing the diversity in your agency and bringing in more minorities and that sort of thing. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing. I think it might be that in the UK, we are more concerned with class than race. And I think that you've got a heritage of racial problems and we've got a heritage of class problems. But I would regard it more of a class issue in the United Kingdom and just bringing working class people into a middle class dominated environment and then just dumping them there isn't the answer. You know, and they need to be the the people in the middle class environment need to be aware that they, that that there are different values, different aspirations, different motivations, etc. And frankly, the people who will be introduced into the middle class gated community are more representative of the mainstream and the audiences at which the advertising agencies should be aiming than the people who are working in the agencies at the moment. Well, it's definitely an interesting argument. It's something I need to educate myself more on. Um, There's obviously a lot more to discuss here, but uh, for people that are interested, what's the 
name of your book and when is it going to be available? The new edition, which updates the story, and it's, it's primarily about what's happening in the United Kingdom, but I think it's applicable to what's happening in the United States. It takes the story of uh, Adlan's response to COVID-19. It's, it's quite frankly, pathetic response to COVID-19 in the United Kingdom. And it takes it from August of last year to June. Now, you know, so the original book took the story up to August of last year, and these six new chapters take the story up to the present day. Nice. Okay. And it's called Can't Sell, Won't Sell, Advertising, Politics, and Culture Wars, Why Advertising Stopped Selling and Started Saving the World. Great. That's a, that's a good subtitle. It's thorough. So one of the ways that I like to end is just asking for a piece of advice. It could be anything. So... Uh, is there anything that comes to mind, you know, something that's helped you or something that you like to suggest to people? Yeah, it could be anything. Let's say, let's say starting a new agency. Yeah. I mean, when I started mine, I wrote a paper saying why the world needs another direct marketing agency. Kind of why, what are you offering that, that nobody else is offering? Or, or what is the gap? You know, what is the problem you're solving? Again, it comes down to problem solution, Tim. You know, kind of what's the problem these people have got? that I can go into a room and say, I can solve this for you in a way that other people aren't. So yeah, it's, um, if you're thinking of starting your own business, don't do it simply because everyone else, you know, kind of, yeah, why does the world need it? You know, otherwise it's a vanity job. Yeah, kind of like, you know, thinking about the problem that uh, you're solving for a brand, you know, thinking, thinking about the problem that you're solving as an agency. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a vanity business. Right. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Um, it was great talking to you. You've, you know, definitely given me things to think about. And I'm sure the other people listening things to think about. Uh, do, do you think I'll have to join the witness protection program? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like 100%. I think, you know, from, from the chapters you told me to read, I think that they're valid arguments and, you know, you come at it at a way that's respectful. So I wouldn't, I would think you'd be fine. And I think, you know, you're finding that to be the case as you share it with people. I am. I think that the situation in the, the polarization of political polarization in the States is now almost irreconcilable. There is no middle ground. I think anybody who voices an opinion on either side of the argument is, is. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. Whereas in the UK, we still have, a, you know, we're not quite down that road yet. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon, Steve. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, mate. What an episode. I want to thank Steve Harrison, obviously. I want to thank you guys for listening. I'm going to continue to tell the story of starting an agency and trying to get it off the ground. And it's just super fun to have you guys along the ride with me. Uh, so stay tuned for the next one. It's going to be super sweet and dope. 